Part Three, Chapter Three of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The old prince Nikolai Andreyevich Bolkonsky, in December eighteen o five, received a letter from Prince Vasily announcing his coming with his son on a visit. I am making a tour of inspection, and of course the hundred verst distance across the country shall not keep me from coming to see you, venerated benefactor he wrote, and my Anatole accompanies me. He is on his way to the army, and I hope you will permit him to show you the deep respect which he, in emulation of his father, has conceived for you. Well, there's no need of bringing Marie out, if suitors come to us of their own accord, said the little princess indiscreetly, when this was mentioned to her. Prince Nikolai Andreyevich frowned and made no reply. Two weeks after the receipt of the letter, Prince Vasily's servants made their appearance in advance of him, and on the next day he and his son arrived. The old Prince Bolkonsky had a low opinion of Prince Vasily's character, and this had been intensified of late by the great advances which he had made in rank and honors under the emperors Paul and Alexander. Now especially, from the letter and the insinuations made by the little princess, he saw what was in the wind and his low opinion of Prince Vasily was transmuted in his heart into a feeling of really malevolent contempt. He snorted whenever he mentioned his name. On the day that Prince Vasily was expected, Prince Nikolai Andreyevich was especially surly and out of sorts. Whether he were out of sorts because Prince Vasily was coming, or whether he was dissatisfied with Prince Vasily's visit because he was out of sorts, it did not alter the fact that he was out of sorts and Tikhon early in the morning advised the architect not to come near the prince unless he was summoned. "'Listen, hear him walking up and down,' remarked Tikhon, calling the architect's attention to the sounds of the prince's tramp. "'He stamps his heels, and we all know what that means.' However, at the usual hour of nine o'clock, the prince came out for his morning walk, dressed in his velvet shubka, with its sable collar, and in a cap of the same fur. The night before there had been a snowstorm, the path along which the prince walked to the orangery had been swept, traces of the broom were still to be seen on the snow, and the shovel was driven into a light embankment of snow, heaped high on both sides of the path. The prince went the round of the greenhouses, the yard, and the various buildings, frowning and silent. "'Can sleighs come up?' he asked of his overseer, a man who was his image in face and actions, and was accompanying him with great deference back to the house." the snow is deep your illustriousness i have already given orders to have the snow shoveled away from the preshbeck the prince bent his head and started to go up the steps glory to thee o lord was the overseer's mental exclamation the cloud has passed it was hard to approach your illustriousness added the superintendent when i heard your illustriousness that your illustriousness was expecting a minister the prince turned round toward his overseer and fastened his gloomy eyes upon him. What? A minister. What minister? Who commanded you? he exclaimed in his shrill, harsh voice. The road is cleared not for the princess, my daughter, but for a minister. We have no ministers at my house. Your illustriousness, I supposed. You supposed? screamed the prince, uttering the words more and more hastily and incoherently. You supposed, cutthroats, placards, I will teach ye to suppose, and raising his cane, flourished it over Albatuich, and would have struck him had not the overseer instinctively dodged the blow. You supposed, 
Blackguard! screamed the prince. But notwithstanding the fact that Alpatuich, alarmed at his audacity in avoiding the blow, hastened up to the prince, and humbly bent before him his bald pate, or possibly for this very reason, the prince continued to scream, Blackguards! Have the road shoveled back again! But did not raise the cane a second time, and hastened into his room. The princess Marie and Mademoiselle Bouillon, knowing that he was in a bad humor, stood waiting for him to come to dinner. Mademoiselle Bourine, with a beaming face, which said, Oh, I know nothing about it. As for me, I am always the same. And the princess, pale and scared, with downcast eyes. Hardest of all was it for the princess Marie to know that in these circumstances she ought to imitate Mademoiselle Bourine, but she could not do so. It seemed to her, if I should pretend not to pay any attention, he would think that I had no sympathy for him, and if I show him that I am melancholy and out of sorts myself, he will say, as he always does, that I am in the blues. The prince looked at his daughter's scared face and snorted. Goo, or fool, he muttered. And the other one not here. Can they have been tattling to her, he wondered, when he saw that the little princess was not in the dining-room. Where is the princess, he asked. Is she hiding herself? She is not feeling very well, said Mademoiselle Bourine, with a radiant smile. She won't come down. That is natural in her condition. Hm, hm, oh, grumbled the prince, and took his seat at the table. His plate seemed to him not quite clean. He pointed to a spot and flung it away. Tikhon caught it and handed it to the butler. The little princess was not ill but she was so invincibly afraid of the old prince that when she learned that he was in a bad humor, she resolved not to leave her room. "'I'm afraid for my baby,' said she to Mademoiselle Bourine. "'God knows what might happen if I were frightened.' The little princess lived at Louisia Garay most of the time, with a sense of fear and apathy for her father-in-law, whom she did not understand because her terror so overmastered her that she could not. The prince reciprocated this antipathy for his daughter-in-law, but it was not so strong as his contempt for her. The princess, since her residence at Louisia Guret, had taken special fancy to Mademoiselle Bourine, spent whole days with her, often begged her to sleep with her, and talked about the old prince with her, and criticized him. "'Some visitors are coming to see us, prince,' said Mademoiselle Bourine, as she unfolded her white napkin with her rosy fingers. "'His Excellency Prince Kurigan, I understand,' said she, with a questioning inflection." Hm, this excellency, as you call him, is a puppy. I got him appointed to the college, said the prince disdainfully. But why his son is coming is more than I know. The princess Lizaveta Karlovna and the princess Marya, possibly they know, but I don't know what he's bringing his son here for. I don't want him. And he looked at his blushing daughter. So, she isn't very well today. From fear of the minister, I suppose as that blockhead of an Alpatuich called him to-day. No, mon père. Though Mademoiselle Bourine had been particularly unfortunate in her choice of a subject of conversation, she was not at all put out of countenance, but rattled on about the greenhouses, and about the beauty of some new flower that had just blossomed, and the prince, after his soup, melted and became more genial. After dinner he went to see his daughter-in-law. The little princess was sitting by a stand and chatting with Masha, her maid. She turned pale at the sight of her father-in-law. The little princess had very much altered. One would now much sooner call her ugly than pretty. Her cheeks were sunken, 
Her lip was raised, her eyes had a drawn look. Yes, a little headache, she replied to the prince's question how she felt. Do you need anything? Non, merci, mon père. Well, then. Very good. Very good. He left the room and went to the office. Albatuich, with drooping head, was waiting for him there. Is the snow shoveled back? It is, your illustriousness. Forgive me, for God's sake, this one piece of stupidity. The prince interrupted him and smiled his unnatural smile. Well, then, very good, very good. He stretched out his hand for Alpatuich to kiss, and then went to his cabinet. Prince Vasily arrived in the evening. He was met on the Preshpek, as they call the prospect, or high road, by the coachman and stable hands, who with loud shouts dragged his covered vozuk and sledge up to the entrance, over snow which had been purposefully heaped upon the driveway. Separate chambers had been prepared for Prince Vasily and Anatole. Anatole, in his shirt-sleeves, and with his arms akimbo, was sitting before a table on one corner of which he stared absent-mindedly with his large, handsome eyes, while a smile played over his lips. He looked upon his life as one unbroken round of gaiety which it was fated should be prepared for his amusement, and even now he looked in the same way on this visit to a churlish old man and a rich and monstrously ugly heiress. According to his theory, all this might lead to something very good and amusing. And why should he not marry her, if she was so very rich? That never comes amiss, thought Anatole. He shaved, perfumed himself carefully and coquettishly, and with an expression of indifference that was innate to him, and holding his head high, like a young conqueror, he went to his father's chamber. Two valets were engaged in getting Prince Vasily dressed. He himself looked around him with much animation, and gave a nod to his son as he came in, as much as to say, Good, that's the way I want you to look. No, but tell me, Babushka, without joking, is she monstrously ugly? Say, he asked, as though continuing a conversation that had been more than once broached during the course of their journey. Oh, that'll do. It's all nonsense. The main thing is to try to be respectful and prudent towards the old prince. If he's going to say unpleasant things to me, I shall go right away, said Anatole. I can't abide these old men, eh? Remember, your whole future depends upon this. Meantime, in the maidservant's room, not only was it known that the minister and his son had arrived, but every detail of their personal appearance had been circumstantially discussed. But the Princess Maria sat alone in her room, and vainly struggled to conquer her inward agitation. Why did they write me? Why has Liza spoken to me about this? Why, of course it cannot take place, said she to herself, looking into her mirror. How can I go down to the drawing-room? Even if he pleased me, I could not now be sure of myself in his presence. The mere thought of her father's eyes renewed her dismay. The little princess and Mademoiselle Burine had, by this time, received all necessary information from the maid, Masha, who told them what a handsome young man, with rosy cheeks and dark eyebrows, the minister's son was, and how, when his papenka had been scarcely able to drag his feet up the stairs, he had flown up like an eagle, three steps at a time. After hearing this news, the little princess and Mademoiselle Birine hastened to the Princess Maria's room, filling the corridor with the lively sound of their voices as they went. "'Ils sont arrivés, Marie. Did you know it?' said the little princess, waddling along and dropping heavily into an armchair. 
She was no longer in the dressing sack, which she had worn in the morning, but had put on one of her best gowns. Her hair was carefully brushed, and her face was full of animation, which, however, did not atone for her sunken and livid features. In the finery in which she was accustomed to appear in Petersburg society, it was still more noticeable that her beauty had sadly faded. Mademoiselle Burine had also taken pains to make some improvement in her dress, and this made her pretty, fresh face still more attractive. "'What? And you intend to appear as you are, dear princess?' she exclaimed. "'They will be here in a moment to bring word that the gentlemen are in the drawing-room.' "'We must go down, so won't you make just a little change in your toilet?' The little princess got up out of the armchair, rang for the maid, and hastily and merrily began to devise some adornment for her sister-in-law, and get it materialized. The Princess Maria felt humiliated, in her own sense of dignity, by the excitement which the coming of her suitor stirred in her, and still more humiliated because both of her friends did not seem to imagine that it was possible to be otherwise. To tell them how ashamed she was for herself, and for them, would have been to betray her agitation. Moreover, to have refused to put on the adornment which they were getting ready for her would have entailed endless jests and reproaches. She grew red, her lovely eyes lost their brilliancy, her face became covered with patches, and with the unlovely expression, as of a victim, coming more and more frequently into her face, she surrendered herself into the power of Mademoiselle Burine and Lisa. Both the ladies labored in perfectly good faith to render her handsome, she was so homely that neither of them could ever dream of entering into rivalry with her. Therefore, being perfectly sincere in that naive and firm conviction peculiar to women, that ornaments can make a face beautiful, they busied themselves with her adornment. "'No, it's a fact, ma bonne amie, that dress isn't becoming,' said Lisa, looking critically at her sister-in-law from some little distance. "'Truly, that dark red masaka that you have, truly,' You know your whole fate, perhaps, depends upon this matter. This one is too light. It won't do. No, oh, no, it won't do. It was not that the dress was not becoming, but the princess's face and whole figure were at fault. But neither Mademoiselle Burine nor the little princess realized this. It seemed to them that if they put a blue ribbon in her hair, and combed it up properly, and then added a blue scarf to her cinnamon-colored dress, and made some other additions, all would be well. They forgot that her scared face and her figure could not be altered, and, therefore, no matter how much they might vary the frame and adornment, the face itself would remain pitiful and unattractive. At last, after two or three experiments, to which the Princess Maria patiently submitted, when her hair had been combed up high from her forehead, a mode of dressing the hair that absolutely changed her face, and that for the worse, she was dressed in the masaka dress with a blue scarf, the little princess walked around her twice in succession, adjusted with her dainty fingers some of the folds in the skirt, pulled out the scarf, looked at her with her head bent now on this side, now on that. No, that is impossible, said she, decidedly, clasping her fans. No, Marie, decidedly this does not do at all. I like you better in your little everyday grey dress. Now please, do this for me, Katya, she said to the maid. Bring the princess her greyish dress and— See, Mademoiselle Burine, how I am going to fix it, she added, with a thrill of anticipation in her artistic pleasure. But when Katya brought the desired garment, the Princess Maria sat motionless before the mirror looking at her face, and the mirror gave back the reflection of eyes full of tears, and a mouth trembling with the premonition of a storm of sobbing. Foyon, chère princesse, said Mademoiselle Burine, 
encore un petit effort. The little princess, taking the dress from the maid, went to the Princess Marie. Well, now we will try something that is simple and becoming, said she. The three voices, hers, Mademoiselle Burine's, and Katya's, who was laughing, mingled into one merry chatter like the chirping of birds. Non, laissez-moi, let me be, said the princess, and her voice sounded so serious and sorrowful that the chirping of the birds ceased instantly. They looked at her large, beautiful eyes, full of tears and of melancholy, and they knew from their wide and beseeching expression that it was useless and even cruel to insist. Un moi chance de coiffure, said the little princess. I told you so, said she reproachfully to Mademoiselle Burine. Marie has one of those faces which can't stand this way of dressing the hair. Not at all, not at all. Change it, please do. Laissez-moi, laissez-moi. It's all absolutely the same to me, replied the young princess in a weary voice and scarcely refraining from tears. Mademoiselle Bourine and the little princess were obliged to acknowledge to themselves that the Princess Maria, as they had dressed her, was very homely, more so than usual, but now it was too late. She looked at them with that expression which they had learned to know so well, an expression of deep thought and melancholy. It did not inspire them with any sense of awe of her, for that feeling she could never inspire, but they knew that when her face had this expression, she was silent and immovable in her resolutions. Vous changerez, n'est-ce pas? asked Lisa, but when the Princess Maria made no reply, Lisa left the room. The Princess Maria was left alone. She would not grant Lisa's request, and not only she did not change the style of her hair, but did not even look at herself in the glass. Dropping her eyes and letting her hands fall nervously, she sat and pondered. She saw in her imagination her husband, a man, a strong, commanding, and strangely attractive being, who should suddenly carry her off into his own world, so different from hers, so full of happiness. She imagined herself pressing to her bosom her own child, just such a baby as she had seen the evening before at her old nurse's daughter's. Her husband stands looking affectionately at her and their baby. But no, this is impossible. I am too homely, said she to herself. Please come to tea. The prince will be down in a moment, said the voice of the chambermaid outside the door. She started up from her daydream and was horror-struck at her own thoughts, and before she went downstairs she got up, went into the oratory, and pausing before the blackened face of the great image of the Saviour, lighted by the beams of the tapers, she stood there for several moments with folded hands. Her heart was filled with painful forebodings. Could it be that for her there was the possibility of the joy of love, of earthly love for husband? In her imaginings concerning marriage, the Princess Maria dreamed of family happiness and children, but her principal dream, predominating over all others, though unknown to herself, was that of earthly love. The feeling was all the stronger, the more she tried to hide it from others, and even from herself. "'My God!' she cried. How can I crush out of my heart these thoughts of the evil one? How can I escape once and for all from evil imaginings and calmly fulfill thy will? And she had hardly offered this prayer ere God gave an answer in her own heart. Desire nothing for thyself. Seek not. Disturb not thyself. Be not envious. The future and thy fate must needs be hidden from thee. But live so as to be ready for anything." If it please God to try thee in the responsibilities of marriage, be ready to fulfill his will. 
with this consoling thought but still with a secret hope that her forbidden earthly dream might be realized the princess maria with a sigh crossed herself and went downstairs thinking not of her dress or of her hair or of how she should make entrance or of what she should say what did all that signify in comparison with the preordination of god without whose will not a hair can fall from a man's head. End of chapter 3